Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible is a book of history. It is the book of the history of creation, fall, redemption, and glorification. It's the book of our history, our family history, as the human race, as human beings. And like any good history, it begins at the right place. It begins at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the scriptures reveal to us who God is and what he has done. Reveals to us that he created human beings to live in a relationship of love with him and with one another. That he created human beings in his image to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it reveals to us how he made everything perfectly attuned in the universe to help us do just that. He gave us a beautifully crafted universe for his glory, as a theater of his glory, and for our home with all of the resources that we needed to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And you remember as we went through the first chapters of Genesis, you remember that God put man in a a garden in the middle of the region of Eden, And in that region, there was gold, there was precious stones, there were rivers, there were trees, there were fruit, all kinds of different types of fruit. And if we want to understand what was supposed to happen, we can turn to the end of the Bible. When we get to Revelation, we see what Adam and Eve and all their descendants were supposed to have done. They were supposed to have developed that garden until it filled the whole earth, until you had that glorious garden city with the river... uh, of life flowing through the, 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 the tree of life on both sides of the banks and the streets paved with gold and precious stones in abundance everywhere. The whole earth developed into, into a glorious garden city in which God's people would celebrate, rejoice, and feast and delight in him and in each other for eternity. That was the whole point. That was supposed to happen. That's where history points towards the heavenly city, God with his people, a multitude that no man can number, the very best in technology and arts and food and drink and gardening and every good and enjoyable thing, an eternal feast of infinite joy. That's the way things are supposed to be. That's where this creation was designed to head for. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, we have the introduction to the book and to the Bible describing the glorious work of creating this home in which we are to do this. And then we get to the first holodote in chapter 2. This is, these are the generations, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. What happened to this heavens and earth that God created? Well, the short Answer is, man fell. He was created and placed in the garden to guard and keep it. And you remember perhaps from those sermons back in Genesis chapter 2 that uh, those verbs, guard and keep, are technical terms for ministry in the tabernacle later. It's what the, the priests had to do. They had to guard and keep. They had to serve and minister and protect to to maintain the holiness of 
the tabernacle, the place where God and man could come together and have fellowship. And so Adam and Eve failed on every count in their offices, their priestly, their kingly, and their prophetic offices. And so we have a problem, a massive problem. The entire project of this universe has been derailed in a most horrifying way. And the question is, right away in chapter 3, we've hardly begun the story. And in chapter 3, the question is, how is this going to be fixed? How can it be fixed? Can it even be fixed? And then in chapter 3, we get the answer right away as well. Right after the fall... We get this glorious gospel answer. Oh, yes, it can be fixed because God is a God who loves with an everlasting love. He doesn't let go of his children. He will pursue them with his love. And so he does. Adam, where are you? He's looking for his unworthy, fallen, ashamed children. He seeks them out. And so we see God's sovereign grace. The only hope for the sinner is that God would come looking for us because there's no way we're going to go looking for God. And then you remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God puts that blessed enmity into the human race. He, he puts this, this conflict, this ongoing antithesis between two parts of the human race so that there will always be a church, so that there will always be at least a small group of people that love God and that serve God, even if that group gets very small. God promises that that line of the woman, the line of the the holy line of the faithful will continue until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the entire Old Testament and right through the scriptures is tracing the history of those two lines. And then we get to Genesis chapter 4. Just doing a little bit of review here because it's a long time since we did the sermons on Genesis. We get to chapter 4, and what do we see? Well, we see the descendants of the serpent. We see the unbelievers, the rebellious against God. They seem to be coming out on top. They're the top people in technology, in agriculture, in the arts, in culture. They are arrogant. They are violent. They're killing each other. Hating each other and being hated. And all we read in chapter 4 of the sons of God is that they're calling upon the name of the Lord. That's the best way to describe them. They're people that fall on their faces and cry out to God. Which, of course, the world would not consider such an amazing thing. Then we get to the second Toledote, that's chapter 5, the Toledote of Adam. So what's the history of Adam then? What happens? What is, what is the fallout of his life? And we see in chapter 5 that refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died through one man. Sin and death came into the world and so spread to all men. We see violence, disobedience, and wickedness, the, the wickedness of the heart of man being so deep and so rooted that every thought and intention of his heart is wicked all the time. And that drives the story towards the flood where God will cleanse this wickedness from the world. And we see, we come to the third Toledot where where Noah in chapter 6, just Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, those eight people, Chosen from that group of no ones, of nobodies, the holy seed, despised by the world. God chooses them 
for a new beginning. And we would think, well, God chose a righteous man. It's going to work well this time. It's going to work out okay now. But what happens right after the flood? Yes, so much for that righteous man. There he lies in shame, uncovered in his tent, drunk. And his son mocking and dishonoring him. And his son's descendants cursed through the generations. And then we get to the fourth Tolodot, the descendants of the sons of Noah. And, and what does that bring us? It brings us chapter 11 of Genesis, the, the Tower of, of Babel. There they are, shortly after the flood. And they're helping to build a tower as they conspire, like the, the kings of Psalm 2, they conspire and make plans against the Lord and his anointed. And they will storm heaven. They will build up the glory of man until they come to the very gate of God, Babel, in the ancient language of that region, meaning gate of God. And you know who's even involved in that? The descendants of Shem. Shem is the, the guy that's supposed to be continuing with the holy line here, the line of the Messiah. Many of the Shemites are involved, and Shem is the Hebrew word for name. Shem is just the word name in Hebrew. Shem is named name. And he is supposed to be set aside to call upon the name, to bear the name, to glorify the name, to live according to the will of the name that is above every other name. But instead, there we see even the Shemites in chapter 11 joining with the world and the seed of the serpent to try to make a name for themselves. And then we get to chapter 11, verse 10. And we see the, we see the um, genealogy of Shem. And so that's the fifth Toledote. And that's kind of just the connector between the story of Babel and the story of the call of Abram, which is our text for this morning. And if, as you look over those verses, we didn't read them, but chapter 11, verse 10 through to 26, what you will notice if you just scan those verses is that the power of Eden continues to ebb and to, to fade. When, when Adam and Eve left the garden, they didn't immediately become like us. They weren't as weak as we are. They weren't as broken down by generations and millennia of sin and destruction of sin as we are. Uh, the the DNA was a lot healthier and stronger. The, the, they, they were built and, and created to live forever. And that's why right after Eden, you see for the first while, people living incredibly long lives. But if you just scan this, this list of names here in chapter 11, verse 10 through to 26, you notice that those lives are getting shorter and shorter and shorter as the human body and the genome continue to break down through the generations as accelerated decay. It just gets worse and worse. And then we come to our text, Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. This is the sixth Toledot, the sixth section of Genesis, the sixth section which begins with those words. These are the generations of, or this is the history of. This is what happened. It's the longest one, the sixth. It starts here in Genesis eleven twenty-seven. It's going to go right through to chapter 25. 
are you surprised that it's named after Terah? You would expect, because Abram figures very, very prominently in this history. Why is it named after Terah? Especially because we know that Terah was an idolater. He wasn't a servant of the Most High. If you turn to Joshua 24.2 for a second, you'll see that Joshua addresses the people of Israel in Joshua 24.2. And he tells them straight out, he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Can't get much more clear than that. These people were not serving the true God. So why then does God, the Holy Spirit, put Terah as the the name here for this Toledot? Well, the reason is because this Toledot is about the fallout, not just of the life of Abraham, but of the life of Terah. Throughout this Toledot, we will meet the matriarchs of God's people, Rebekah, who marries Isaac. She's the granddaughter of Nahor and the great-granddaughter of Terah. We will meet Leah and Rachel, two other matriarchs of God's people who married Jacob. They are great-granddaughters of Nahor. So we, we get the patriarchs through Abram. We get the matriarchs through Nahor, the other son of Terah. And as we read through Genesis and the rest of the Bible, we meet the Moabites and the Ammonites. They're descendants of Lot through Haran, the one who died. We meet the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, the Edomites, all kinds of nations connected to and derived from Terah and his sons. And in the midst of those nations, Israel will live and interact. Even though they're all from the line of Shem, and they should all be God-fearers and should all be joining in with that holy line, yet they become enemies of God's people. Now, what's going on here in Genesis eleven twenty-seven as we pivot to the second five of the ten Toledot is that we have a massive change going on here. You remember Genesis 3.15 God promised that one would be born from the line of the woman who would crush the serpent. So we know that the mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ, he must be born from the holy line. He must be born from the line through the generations of God-fearers. But then we get to Terah, and he's in that line. Terah is an idolater. And according to some of the ancient Jewish uh, um, commentators, Terah even had an idol shop. He made idols. For whatever that's worth, the point is, is that the scripture makes it clear that he served other gods. And that's a problem. Because how can the Messiah be born from a line of idolaters? If you turn forward to the New Testament, you see what happens in the New Testament, that that the Lord Jesus is born to Joseph, who was a just and righteous man. He's born to Mary, a young, godly woman who, who knew the Scriptures very well and knew the Lord and loved the Lord. 
That's the way it's supposed to be. So how can it happen if the line has turned to idolatry and rebellion? So what's happening in, in this sixth Toledot is that God begins to work to, to narrow the focus. So far, the emphasis or the focus of Genesis has been universal, looking at all the nations. But now God will focus just on one man, Abram. And from this one man, he's going to grow a special holy nation and put that nation in a special holy land. And that land will be kind of a a greenhouse, a safe, protected environment in which to keep alive the knowledge of God and the faithful worship of God until Christ is born. So there's, there's an intervention here by God in history because the knowledge of God is starting to totally fade out. I mean, it's here and there. You remember Melchizedek, just some random guy we meet in the Old Testament. He's not connected with with Abram necessarily, but he knows the Lord. We think of Job, who is somewhere else in that region at around that time as well. He knows the Lord. So people still know the Lord, but it's starting to fade out the knowledge of and the service of the Lord. So the Lord begins to work to put together the people of Israel. And so we see a little bit about how God works. God doesn't just wave a magic wand and all of a sudden there's a a group of people serving him in a land which is dedicated to him with a temple which is built for his worship. This whole process takes hundreds of years. God puts one thing in place and he puts another thing in place and he, he, he influences the life of another person and he works through all kinds of afflictions and troubles and challenges and setbacks and over centuries, until finally he puts his people in that furnace, that oven of affliction in Egypt, till they're baked well, and they're ready to enter the promised land. But then first they've got to go through the, the wilderness and suffer some more. So God is a God who delights in process. God is less of a mechanic than he is a gardener. He doesn't just say, well, this part's wrong, I'm going to put it out and put a new one in, now it's all fixed. But God works like a gardener, cultivating and pruning and and binding up and watering. And so we get to the first verses of our text, 27 through to the end of chapter 11. And it's something that we might be tempted to skip over. It's just a bunch of generations and a whole bunch of mentions of all these names, and they just happen to move from one place to another. But we shouldn't skip over this these verses, it's important. We notice, for instance, that Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. That's verse 28. In the presence of, literally in the Hebrew, before the face of. So something traumatic happened here. We don't know what. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us. But but Haran died right in front of his dad. His dad saw him die. That's not the way life is supposed to be. People aren't supposed to die for one. And if there is death, even in a broken and fallen world, children should bury their parents. It shouldn't be the other way around. So there's this pain and this suffering here. We don't know how God used that to work in Terah's life. And then we, we read that they were in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, that's interesting because the Chaldeans, we connect with Babylon, Right? And the Chaldeans actually don't show up in history till about a thousand years later, right? Here in, in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, we're about 2,000 years before 
the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Chaldeans don't show up in the, in the area of the Euphrates and the Tigris and Babylon area. They don't show up there till about a thousand years later. So what is this Ur of the Chaldeans? Well, I don't have time to go into all the details, but I will say this, that it's most likely an area not east of the Promised Land in the area of Babylon, but most likely north of the Promised Land, north of Syria towards the Black Sea in modern-day Turkey, perhaps. That's where the Chaldeans were before a thousand years later. They kind of migrate down southeast. And so it actually makes more sense because uh, even though uh, in some Bible commentaries you might read that they've discovered a city by the mouth of the Euphrates, uh, or where the mouth used to be, uh, called Ur, and it's Abram's city, it doesn't make any sense. For one thing, it's, it's not on the other side of the Euphrates, and the Bible makes it clear that where Abram comes from is on the other side of the Euphrates. Uh, and also, to go from there to Canaan, you don't go through Haran. It doesn't make any sense to go from there through Haran. So, most likely, Abram and his family are coming from up north, and they stop in Haran. They went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan, but they settled in Haran. Now, Haran, you can find it on Google Maps. It's a city just north of the Syrian border. It's in southern Turkey, and it has existed for thousands of years. The same town that we're reading about in our text is still there today. You can go visit it. It's an ancient city, at least 4,000 years old. Now, What's going on here? Why do they start to go to Canaan? Why do they stop? Why do they stop in Haran? Because Haran is not very far from where they start out. What's going on here? And there are all kinds of ideas and opinions, but God doesn't want us to speculate. We just got to stick with what the Bible says and leave it at that. The Holy Spirit gives us the information he wants us to know, and we should be content with that. So what we can do is we can turn to Genesis 15, Verse 7, and this is where God is speaking with Abram, and look what he says to him, 15.7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So God says, you know, I didn't just bring you out of Haran, I brought you out of Ur. So God began to work in Abram's life back in, in Ur. And we see that even more clearly if we turn to Acts chapter 7, you remember our brother Stephen was, being, was about to be stoned, a deacon Stephen from the church in Jerusalem, and he gives a great big sermon, a redemptive historical sermon in Acts chapter 7, and he touches on this point in 7 verse 2 and 3. It's the beginning of his sermon. He says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when? When he was in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is the the land between the two rivers, so between the Euphrates and the Tigris, which is also there in that area where Haran is, before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land I will show you. So God first comes to, to Abram before Haran. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, which you are now in which we are now living. So Stephen makes it very clear by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that it's in Ur of the Chaldees that Abram was called initially. We don't know why they stopped in Haran, but it seems to be in God's providence they did. 
And then when Terah died, then God said, okay, Abram, now you keep going and go to the land that I will show you. And you remember we read in, in Hebrews that he didn't even know where that was. He just kind of went and waited for the Lord to show him. So Abram obeys. First moving from Ur to Haran, and I don't know if Haran is named after the, the, the son who died, perhaps. And what's happening here is that there's a beginning of separation. Uh, Terah and his uh, descendants, his sons and his grandkids, are separating from the tribe in which they live and from the area, and they're setting up shop in their own city. And then later on, this is important because when um, Isaac and Jacob need husband, uh, wives, they, they, they have to go or they have to send to this area where there are relatives that, compared to the rest of the world, know the Lord better. And so that's where they seek their future spouses. And so that separation begins here. God is providing for the future. And so there in Haran, they, they build up wealth in, in people and in servants and in, in employees and in, in, in all kinds of uh, flocks and, and wealth. Terah was incredibly rich, not as rich as Job, but, but very rich. And Abram as well is very, very wealthy. And then we come to 12 verse 1. God says, okay, now it's time to move on. Terah's dead. Now go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house, go to a land I will show you. Now this is an incredible command. Because we live in Canada, and you can move from St. Albert to wherever in Canada, and you don't have to be afraid that somebody's going to beat down your door and attack you, that the, the, the neighborhood will, will rise up and surround your house because you don't belong to that area. No, we have a, a level of security and safety and law and order in Canada, which is unknown at this time in history, and in many times in history, let alone many places in the world today. So you were safer to stay with your tribe. You were safer to stay with your people. You had no idea how uh, exposed you would be if you just opt and went to another place. You would be at the mercy of the local warlords in those areas. So Abel's being asked to leave behind protection and safety and guarantees and comfort. He's got everything all set up. He's got this city of Haran, and he's probably living in one of the nicer houses, and he's got his flocks out in the field. He's got his employees. He's got his businesses. He's got his trade routes established. Life is good, and God says, Abram, give it all up. I'm putting you into quarantine. You've got to cut off all your connections to your life and to the world of idolatry. All the things that you think you need, you have to open your hands to. You have to give up, and you just have to follow me. You have to obey. That's all you need to do. Now, it's hard. Abram comes from a family of idolaters, and he has to give up all the things he trusts in to be happy. And so God says, go to a land I will show you. There's total faith here. God doesn't, God doesn't sell this to Abram. God doesn't say, Abram, listen, this, this is a really nice land, and, and this is the benefit of going there. And if you go there, I know it's going to be hard at the beginning, but this is the future consequence of you listening to me. And I, I promise you it's going to work out, and it's going to be good for you. None of that. God says, Abram, give everything up and go there. He doesn't sell it. He doesn't justify it. And 
in human terms and on the face of it, it looks like the worst decision you could make for Abram to go from Haran down into the land of Canaan at that time was not a wise move. It went against the migration patterns at the end of the third millennium BC. People were getting out of there. The, the archaeology shows that there were probably great uh, climactic problems. There were earthquakes. There were all kinds of um, civilizations being overturned. There was turmoil. There wasn't safety. There wasn't security. It was a place people were moving out of. And God says, you go there. It was a place that was uncomfortable, that was unsafe. God says, you go there. It was a land which depended on the rain from heaven. If it didn't rain, you were in trouble. And so we see uh, just in the, a few verses, well, the next, very next verse after our text, look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. Because if it didn't rain, you didn't eat. And that's the land God tells Abram to go to. And then he gives him promises. He says, I will make of you a great nation. That's, that's once again the story being recapitulated here. God's just re-emphasizing re the beginning of the story. What did he do? He created Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What did he say to Noah after the flood? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He said it seven times after the flood. And now, again, he's talking about filling the earth with God-fearers. God's plan for this world, brothers and sisters, is a world full of divine image-bearers, children of God, living, worshiping, rejoicing, glorifying, delighting in God. That's God's plan. And he's going to do it through Abram. And if you look at the first verses, verse 2 and verse 3 of our text, and you count, children, count in your Bible if you have it open, how many times the word bless or blessed or blessing is in these two verses. You will count, I think, five times. Five-fold blessing. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's significant. Remember, we're in the, the second five. We're beginning the second five of the ten Toledot, the ten sections. In the first five Toledot, you don't read a lot of words referring to blessing. You don't read the word blessing very often at all. I think it's just like one or two or three times. But in the first five Toledot, you read the word curse five times. You have the curse on the serpent, Genesis 3.14. You have the curse on the ground, Genesis 3.17. You have the curse on Cain, Genesis 4.11. And in Genesis 5.29, Lamech mentions the curse on the ground again when he, when he speaks about Noah's birth. And in 9 verse 25, we have the curse on Canaan. So up to this point, in the first five Toledot, we've had five times cursing. Curse, 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 curse. And now God intervenes. And he says, it's time to bless, 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 bless. And all of those five blessings come in two verses. We've had 11 chapters in which we have five curses. We have, we have Five blessings in just two verses. Now, the language here of our verse 
is just a sign of what's to come. If you read the rest of Genesis, you'll read 81 times the word blessing. And we're only going to read three more times the word curse. So there's a major change in what's happening here uh, in, in the world. And then he says to Abraham, I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Remember Babel? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make our name great. God says, Abram, I'm going to make your name great, but not for you, not for your glory, so that you're a blessing to others. And then verse 3 says, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. That's covenant language. It's the language of a, a great king with a, a vassal king, a servant king. They would make a covenant, a treaty. They would say, the great king would say, listen, your enemies are my enemies. Your friends are my friends. And that's what God is doing, the great king of the earth is doing with Abram. And why is he doing this? He's doing it for the blessing of the world. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a reference to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And so Abram went as the Lord had told him. God says it, Abram does it. That's what faith looks like. Faith isn't just saying intellectual assent. Yes, that's very true, very nice, I agree with that. Faith is knowing, accepting, believing, and acting. Faith is to hear and to obey. Faith embraces the promises, and faith lives in the power of the promises. It trusts in God's word, and it acts on God's word. Faith is ready to give everything up and follow what God says, no matter how much sense it doesn't seem to make, or no matter how much it hurts. And we read in verse 6 that the Canaanites were still in the land. These were the cursed descendants of Ham, so this is a cursed land. And then we read in verse 7 that the Lord says, listen, this land I will give to your offspring. Now think about that. It's kind of humorous, really. It's a little bit incongruous. He has no child. He's an old man. He's 75 years old. His wife is barren. If you look at the end of chapter 11 in that um, Shem's genealogy, most of these guys were having children by the time they were in their 30s. Abram, 75, still doesn't have a child. He doesn't own one square foot of the land. So he has no children. He has no land. And then God says, well, I'm going to give all this land to your children. It's a land full of the powerful, the ungodly, the cursed by God. Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed. That's how much wickedness is in this land. So what God's saying doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But what's Abram's reaction? Does he say, Lord, you know, can you show me how that's going to work? I don't believe that's going to happen. What does he do? He makes an altar. And he worships. That's what faith does. It doesn't ask to see the proof or the evidence. It says, Lord, you said it. It's true. And I'm going to build my life on it, even though all the world be against it. And even though it's going against the flow and the entire human race is walking the other way, I will live according to your word. And so he builds an altar. And the altar is a tiny little point of contact between heaven and earth. It's a miniature temporary garden of Eden. It's a place where sinners or where human beings can have communion with God. Just a tiny little point of contact. What does he do there? Well, rarely in the scriptures you can have an altar which is just kind of a symbol of something which they don't sacrifice on. But the word altar in Hebrew is literally the word sacrificer, as in an instrument for sacrifices. If in, in Hebrew, if you take a verb and put the, uh, the Hebrew letter M in front of it, then you get the noun, just like we do, right? We have wash, the verb, so washer is a 
machine which washes, dry, and you have the dryer, mix, and you have the mixer. So they do that in Hebrew too. So you put the M in front of the word altar, uh, sacrifice, and you get a thing which is for sacrifices. And that's what the word altar is in Hebrew. So it's connected to blood sacrifices. So Abram worships God through the blood, the blood of a sacrificed animal, which points to the blood of Christ. That's his access to God. And then he wanders through the land as a pilgrim. You notice what he does? Look at verse 8. Wherever he goes, he pitches his tent, he builds an altar, and he worships. Wherever he goes, he makes this tiny little few square feet, which is the Garden of Eden, and there he comes to have fellowship with God. Now he's by Bethel. Many years later, Jacob's going to dream this dream in Bethel where the heavens open. He has access to God, the angels ascending and descending. Bethel means house of God, but that's still in the future. And Ai, many centuries later, will be captured and the land will become the home for the people of God to live in and to worship before the Lord. But that's going to happen way in the future. Right now, Abraham's in the midst of all these wicked, rebellious Canaanites. He piles up some stones and he falls onto the ground and worships. Babel was the gate of God, but God is not to be found in the the most awe-inspiring, glorious projects of fallen man. God is to be found in the most simple and humble places and moments when sinners fall on their faces and worship the Lord. So you may not find God in the great soaring cathedrals of the big cities of the world, but you will find him in a Chinese basement where people are huddled secretly to honor and worship the Lord. And so, verse 9, Abram journeyed on toward the Negev. The Negev is that dry, desert-like area now to the south of Canaan by the Dead Sea and then south of that. Why is he doing that? Where is he going? He's, he's going through the land. He's checking out the inheritance. He's doing reconnaissance. He's living in tents. He doesn't own anything yet. He has no land, no children. He left everything behind. He's just wandering around, waiting to see what's going to happen next. But Hebrews 11, we, we read that, gives us a little bit of a picture of what Abram was thinking. And I just want to read that again with you. Hebrews 11:9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abram knows that he's part of a larger project, and he is content with that, even if this project will be completed many years after his death. He just does what God says, and he leaves the rest to God. So God used Abram's faith and obedience in in this long process of building a nation, sanctifying a land where the, the knowledge and the word and the worship of God will be kept alive until the birth of the Messiah. And that's the first takeaway for us in this text, that God is doing this for you. All this stuff about this guy called Terah and Haran dying and then moving to Haran and then moving to Canaan and Abram, going around pilgrimaging through the land and building altars, this is for you. God made this happen for you so that Jesus could be born, so that Jesus could die 
So that Jesus could be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So that we don't have to have a tiny little altar anymore where we have this tiny little connection. But now heaven and earth meet wherever the temple of God is gathered. And that temple is the very church of the living God all over the world. So we're rejoicing in and enjoying the benefits and fruit of what God's doing here in our text. And so we can worship God for that. We can praise God for that. But there's something else we should consider as we look at this text. Romans chapter 4 says that Abram is the father of all who believe. I don't think there are any Jews in our midst, and if there are, maybe very few that have Jewish blood. Most of us are not from the line of Shem. Most of us are from nations that are not in the holy line. But the Lord Jesus came... He demolished the dividing wall between Israel and the nations. He made peace in the blood of the cross. And he threw open the doors of the church. What narrows here in our text is thrown wide open at the cross and at the resurrection. And so now all the nations are welcome in to be part of God's people. In him, all the families of the earth are being blessed. We are grafted in. We can be living members of the people of God. And we can say, Abraham is our father. He's the father of all believers. So we live in a different time and we have a different role to play than Abraham does in our text. We have a different role in God's kingdom-building project. But there's one thing which is the same. God called Abram from idolatry to faith. God calls us from idolatry to faith. God calls us to go against the flow. God calls us to be countercultural. God calls us to be different. God calls us to not really belong in this world the way it is. God calls us to be pilgrims. And wherever we go, We're not building altars out of stone, but wherever we go, our bodies are presented as a living sacrifice to God. So when I'm on the job site working with electricity, with plumbing or building, or I'm in an office somewhere, I am worshiping. My whole life, my body is a living sacrifice. We're not conformed to the world. We're transformed by the renewal of our minds. And we have great and precious promises, things which Abraham could not even have understood at the point at redemption at which he was. We have so much more knowledge than he had. We know where things are going. We know that the meek shall inherit the earth. We know that this world in which we live will one day be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas and there will be no more sin and no more pain and no more brokenness. We, like Abram, wait for the city whose designer and builder is God. We're not trying to build some Christendom here. We're not trying to take over the government and make all the rules so everybody's a Christian or a reformed Christian. We are looking for the heavens and the earth to be renewed. We sang about it in the psalm. And we're looking for the new Jerusalem to come down out of heaven. And we're looking for the, the eternal city which God has designed and built and is preparing for us. So as we end, the question is this, which are your idols You know, if you're nailed down to your idols, if you've bolted down to the place 
and the situation in which you are right now. You can't go on in your pilgrimage. You're just going to be stuck. So what's holding on to you? What's strapping you and tying you down? What is shackling you to this sinful world? What are you holding on to and refusing to let go to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And the Lord puts before us, brother and sister, this morning, that we need to count the cost. And we need to consider what it means to hear the word of God and to obey it. To hear the voice of our good shepherd and to follow it. I want to end turning with you to Luke 14, 25. Luke 14, 25, the Lord Jesus is instructing us in this dynamic. Luke 14, 25, page 874. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war would not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, If any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. It was a missionary who died in Ecuador, killed by cannibals, who said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So this morning, brothers and sisters, God calls us away from our idolatry and calls us to faith. Where is our heart? Where is our treasure? It is in the promised land. Amen.